0: I'm Catherine Hall, Uh, I'm in the uh, Center for the Study of British Slave Ownership uh, in the History Department and I'll be talking a little bit about that. But my pleasure is to introduce Lonnie Bunch who is the Director of the Smithsonian um, African American Museum of History and Culture, which as I dare say, most of you know, is the most spectacular and wonderful new museum, uh, set in amongst all the kind of um, classic buildings of Washington, and suddenly you see this amazing, totally different kind of building that your eye lights upon. And then you see that clustered around it are loads and loads of black people, which is not what you see at all the other museums all up and down the Mall. Um, which are, you know, the great, it's the great icons of U.S. culture. So it's been a wonderful, um, it's a wonderful building. It's a wonderful uh, resource. It's been greeted with tremendous enthusiasm. And it's marvelous to have this opportunity to talk to Lonnie about some of the questions around that and around heritage and slavery and memory, uh, both in the U.S. and the U.K. context. And tomorrow, Lonnie is doing a big lecture at, is it at 6 o'clock? Where? In the Gustav Tuck building. Yeah, in the Christopher Ingold building. In the Christopher Ingold building.
1: And somebody's going to tell me where that is, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay just wondering. Yeah. OK.
0: Uh, so yeah, so that's at 6 o'clock tomorrow. So this is just like a taster for uh, the big lecture tomorrow. Well, um, Lonnie Bunch is not only the founding director of the museum, but he's been a historian for a long time. He's written lots. Uh, and he's been working centrally with the museum for now the last 10 years? More. 13. 13.
1: But I'm not counting. Yes, I But know. you
0: can see his hair has gone. It's called, <laughs> a Smithsonian, very distinguished it's called Smithsonian. Smithsonian Gray right so we thought we'd begin by talking by situating both of us and why it's hopefully going to be interesting for you to hear us having a conversation and then we thought we'd talk for about 40 minutes and then there'll be time for everyone else to ask questions so we'll see how we go okay we can be flexible since we're small and intimate All right, so Lonnie, will you begin by telling us a little bit about the museum?
1: I think what's important to realize is that as I thought about crafting a national museum, there were a couple issues that shaped what we did. One was the desire to recenter race in the narrative of America. That in many ways, race is seen as an ancillary subject. It's seen as something important, sometimes exotic, but not central to understanding who Americans are, not central to American identity. And I wanted to use the building, use the National Mall, use the collections to basically make the argument that this story about African-American culture is the is the quintessential story about American culture, about American life. And we're really trying to reshape the way people thought about America's identity. But the other piece really came out of a lot of the work and surveys we did about public notions and understanding about slavery. What was really clear is that in the States, slavery was sort of the last great unmentionable in public discourse. That um, to members of the white community, slavery was simply a black story. It was a story that only shaped those who lived in the South during the heyday of slavery. And it was a story that for most white Americans was something that they thought was important, but not essential to their understanding of who they are. Equally challenging was the notion for black Americans that slavery was the great embarrassment. That for many people, it was a notion that um, talk about anything else but the story of slavery. And I was really struck. With the contradiction between people being embarrassed by one slave's ancestors and yet looking at the resiliency and the strength of these people. So I really wanted to craft a museum that first of all framed race in a different way, and then recentered slavery in the discussions. And those two factors shaped the way we created the museum. And that the reality is that creating a national museum was an unbelievably difficult struggle because people, as you framed it on the mall, people did not necessarily want that story to be in the place, the National Mall is the place where America creates the symbols that defines itself. It's where most people come to understand what it means to be an American. And suddenly to have this museum in the center of that mall really raises fundamentally different questions that many people, many people still are not excited about but the reality is that the museum has done something really important. It has stimulated a conversation about history and how central history is to understanding not just yesterday, but today and tomorrow.
0: Well, I could, you know, our project is built around all exactly the same issues that you're talking about. Not that we've ever had the aspiration to build a national museum. That's a a bit beyond us at the moment. But who knows? Who knows knows for the future? But our our project, um, which has now been going for about 10 years, uh, is is centrally concerned with putting race back into British history. And actually, I shouldn't say putting it back into British history, because it's never been in British history. So it's what's the place of race and slavery in British history? And how is it relevant to the national story that we tell? And of course, the problem has been that it's been completely marginalized for so long. And I mean, there are many reasons for that. One is that slavery uh, did not happen internally to the UK. So it's a very, very, very different history from the U.S., where, I mean, it may have been a terrible embarrassment, but you couldn't pretend it didn't happen. You couldn't literally pretend it didn't happen. You couldn't totally disavow it, whereas the story here has been that slavery was something that happened somewhere else. Slavery happened either in the Caribbean or in the U.S., and it's not a British problem. And... That distance between the metropole, which has kept itself kind of clean, as it were, clean and white, in comparison with what's out there, has been, it's a very, very hard narrative to break. And we've only partially broken it, as you can see from the politics of Brexit. Not hard to see how many people still hold on to the idea of a white Britain, which is not Uh, A cosmopolitan place, which is not made by its imperial history, which is not structured through the encounters between people who lived here and others and how they were treated. So re-centering, or rather centering race in the British narrative. Well, now how to do that? So in the context of particularly of 2007, we also had our sort of moment when a national conversation started in the context of the bicentenary of the abolition of the slave trade. And lots and lots of people were talking about what the abolition of the slave trade meant and having lots of arguments about it, which is crucial because we know there's not one story and we've got to listen to the voices, the many voices that there are. And we've got to engage in argument and dialogue. It's no good having one lot of people sitting there saying that and one lot of people saying that. We've got to try and create something which is genuinely national uh, and which crosses boundaries. So in the context of that, we started on this project, and the idea was that we would use the slave owners as a way to get people in Britain (laughs) to recognize the extent to which the slavery business belongs in Britain. Because, And we used, as, as the way in, We used what's called the compensation records. And the compensation records are the records of the money that was paid out to slave owners at the ending of slavery in the Caribbean, Mauritius, and the Cape in 1833, 1834. And the slave owners, the owners, were compensated. And they were paid 20 million pounds of taxpayers' money. Uh, I'm sorry, am I too close? Yeah, I'm too far away. All right. (laughs) Can you all hear? Yeah. Um, So, and because this was a moment in 1834 when the British state was just developing, the there was excellent documentation of all the people, all the individuals who made claims on that compensation money, and there were forty-seven thousand claims made on that money, individual claims, and all of it was documented in the National Archives. So our project was to create a database which would record all that material and then to work on all the people who were living in Britain, who had addresses in Britain, and identify how much money they got and insofar as we could, who were they, what did they do with the money, What was their political influence? What were they doing culturally? Develop as much biographical material as we could. So that resulted in a huge amount of research that was done by our team. And then we went on to a second phase of the project, which was to go backwards from 1833, from the moment of emancipation, and look at all the British slave owners in the Caribbean and track their, the development of their ownership when they, when they sold, how many enslaved people they had, when we can do that, what their estates were, uh, what they were doing with the money, and so on. So, that's the second phase of our project, which is still not finished, but where an awful lot of material is already on our database. So, all of this is to demonstrate the degree of British involvement in the slavery business. And it's to to demonstrate it through following the money, showing uh, how it comes into the development of marine insurance, the development of banks, the development of railways, uh, the development of agrarian capitalism, the development of the great national museums, and so on and so forth. So showing how The slavery business actually permeates British society and is central. It's one of the central elements of the making of modern Britain. So it's a very, very different story from the U.K., I mean from the U.S., but uh, we want to claim it's still central to the making of British identity uh, in the modern state. So that's what we've been doing. Uh, trying to shift public no- notions of slavery, trying to create a conversation, trying to centre race in British narratives. So in that sense, we're a kind of baby sister project, <laughs> too. <laughs> and of course, there are lots of other people trying to do this work in so many different ways. But this is just this is a historical project, which um, fortunately, because of the Uh, the database and so on, has been able to have a very significant impact and be used by all kinds of people, and that's a a very good thing.
1: Part of what was so important to me to think about how we take and centralize slavery again was because I watched what happened here um, around the bicentenary and then what didn't happen in the United States. What was so interesting to me is that on the one hand, it was this interesting moment. Major museums did things. There were publications. There were debates here. Um, But what I was struck by was two years later, I didn't hear anything. You know, It felt like to me that it was just a moment rather than something that was transformative. And so it convinced me that if we were going to do something about that, it had to be a museum, and it had to be something that would then be there continually so that it couldn't just be something that would happen for a year or for two. And I think that was also tied to the fact that after looking at what the UK was trying to do around the bicentenary to see that a year later in the United States, there was so little interest in that conversation. Mm -hmm. Partly it had to do with the political initiative that was going on, which was there was a great deal of discussion politically, especially led by the Republican Party, to say that we should look at slavery, but only as an example of how America was once flawed and now it's not. Mm -hmm. And it was really seen as a way to demonstrate a progressive linear narrative Mm -hmm. that allowed many conservatives to say, we don't really have to wrestle with issues of race. We've done that. Mm -hmm. And so I really wanted to make sure that I began to grapple with it in a way that it wasn't just something that was a one off. And especially as I began to look around the United States and look at how museums and historic sites explored questions of slavery, I was really struck by how, on the one hand, there's been an amazing evolution. You know, when I started, there were all these conversations about calling the enslaved servants mm-hmm. so that you don't even wrestle with the fact that they were actually owned by others. Um, And yet now, almost any museum I go into in the States has a look, a touch, a talk about slavery. Mm -hmm. But the challenge is that what they do is, in some ways, they segregate it. They say it's a story by blacks about blacks rather than a story that shapes whatever the, the region that they're looking at. And so it was essential for me to figure out how do I help museums in the States recognize that the work they've done is important, but completely flawed. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this museum was really trying to set itself up to sort of push new directions, to see if it can encourage all the museums in America to do something very different.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, you're absolutely right that um, 2007 was a moment, and an awful lot happened that year, and then a huge amount of it just disappeared and hasn't been, hasn't, lots of it hasn't been archived. Uh, a lot has been lost. And I mean, the fact that so much happened was in part to do with Blair's government uh, ensuring that 16 million came to uh, the museums and uh, different groups to be able to make initiatives. But of course, the narrative that Blair and the Labour government wanted was flawed in the same way that you're, well not in the same way but in a you know in a parallel way to the republican narrative which was that what they wanted to say was celebrate 2007 because Britain abolished the slave trade they didn't want to think about the 200 years before that of slavery or what happened after it so it was part of the story of the story of progress the story of you know how Britain has been the liberty-loving country. The golden, what Gordon Brown calls the golden thread of liberty, which connects uh, probably Anglo-Saxons, Magna Carta, uh, the Great Reform Act, you know, and so on, forward to the future. I don't think Gordon Brown would believe that anymore, actually. I think he thinks we've really stepped back in pretty disastrous ways. But that, that story of... British progress is such a powerful story that you know, which was a Whig narrative and has been adopted so widely. So, trying to disrupt that is a really tough job. And of course, in 2007, I mean, we got the museum. There's the Liverpool Museum and there's the gallery in London, Sugar and Slavery. But beyond that, it's hard to see. What, of course, loads of people have gone on working, but. You know, you've got a whole central building with uh, with everything, with all the education work that can go from that and, and, and everything that you can do from that kind of central place.
1: Well, I think we were fortunate in two areas. One is that we were able to build on 70 years of scholarship. So the fact that people have been grappling with these issues, scholars have been wrestling with it, writing about it since the 40s, really had given us the opportunity to do this kind of work. So we didn't have to sort of um, reinvent the wheel. And we began to ask different kinds of questions based on that scholarship. I think the other piece was that you really had an opportunity to be subversive. That for the first time, you had Republicans who said they're interested in issues of race Partly because they're trying to get more black votes to support the Republican Party, but also to create this narrative of what we were once flawed and now we're not. Mm-hmm. And so we decided to use that, yep. you know, to use that support. There were many Republicans who supported the work I was doing, who then wrote me amazingly nasty letters when they actually saw the museum open <laughs> because they said, oh, this isn't about yesterday. Um, how dare you talk about Trayvon Martin and tie it to slavery. Yeah. So I think that was, so there are members of Congress who now don't talk to me, yeah. but that's okay. You
0: know. Well, I think it'd be very interesting to talk a bit about, um, about memory and how memory works and how it works differently in the US and the UK on the subject of slavery. So maybe you'd talk a bit about Um, because I think you've had many conversations with people who are direct descendants of the enslaved, which of course is much closer history for you than it is for us.
1: In many ways, the notion of, of memory has been shaped by this sense that it is still something to be embarrassed by. So when I first started going around the country um, asking people to share their stories, their memories, a lot of people were very hesitant to do that. There was a a resistance to say, am I going to feel embarrassed because I'm going to tell you the story of my great-grandfather, my great-great-grandmother? But I think what has happened is that as people have begun to share those stories and we've been able to put them online, we've been able to use them for publications, it's created this groundswell of interest of trying to understand what it means to to be in a situation where you're not the most powerful, but you're finding ways to defend yourself, to defend your family. And I think what's happened has been a great interest now in looking at the impact of memory and memory of enslavement on contemporary families. We now see for the first time in American schools, you see people doing, sharing their family history around enslavement, Mm -hmm. um, which I think is really very powerful and very unusual. I think what's been really interesting to me has been this notion that for the first time, many black families are talking about memory in the United States rather than what they've traditionally done, which is look back to an idolized Africa, Mm. that people would rather talk about African roots that they don't really understand rather than grappling with the roots of slavery, Mm. because slavery seems to be such a a clerk of darkness, a cloak of of embarrassment. I think we're now beginning to move away from that.
0: And do you think that's also connected to the relation between individual and familial memory and collective memory? Because I imagine that in many families, that story was known in a familial way, but perhaps couldn't be shared, couldn't be talked about publicly. So do you think there's a shift between those kinds of levels of memory?
1: I think part of the shift is because of technology right, that you're able to share that and suddenly you see online other stories that are comparable to yours. Mm. And you then feel more comfortable sharing those stories. What's clear is that there was a generational gap. There were people the age of my parents whose ancestors did not talk about slavery. But now there's a generation that says, my kids using technology who are interested in learning more. And I think that's going to stimulate more conversations around that. It's going to really push, I think, scholars to recognize that maybe the most important thing they can do besides their research is make these stories accessible. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really, from my mind, that's what good heritage sites do.
0: I mean, it's interesting because um, I've been talking recently to people in different parts of the world about these issues, about slavery and heritage. And, I mean, Brazil is very much in my mind today, as I'm sure it is in many other people's terrible, very, very, very bad bad news from Brazil. And um, I heard a very interesting case of um, the discovery of a a burial ground of the enslaved um, in Rio. And the whole way in which the politics of that developed, it's called Valongo, and it's now become... Mm -hmm a major heritage site, but it was discovered by white archeologists working in the museum, the museum that's been destroyed by fire, where the incredible collections have been destroyed, which is another awful tragedy. But they discovered it, and they tried to involve uh, black people in the community uh, in their work, and they found it a very, very difficult thing to do. Uh, a lot to do with this question of shame and people not wanting to make that association with slavery. And it's, been, it's clearly been a very difficult learning curve for the archaeologists. Um, and still, the longer I gather, is still not in the hearts of um, many people in, the, um, in, in Rio and beyond. And if you compare that with the history of the New York burial ground, for example, the African-American burial ground in New York, it's very, very different. Now, where it's huge community involvement and uh, groups of descendants who've worked with the archaeologists. So what this points to is the specificity of these different histories of slavery and the different problems that they bring up. So again, I've heard that... In Senegal, uh, it's very, very hard to talk about slavery, and that people are very reluctant to admit their uh, family connections to slavery. It's still a matter of shame. So these face us with different kinds of problems in different places. I think it's really, really important to be attentive to those differences, which are both geographical, they're spatial, they're political, and they're also to do you know with the very specific histories of these particular places
1: I think it's fascinating to me to look at how this is being played out in the Caribbean and African United States mm-hmm. I mean in Africa you've got the additional burden of it's both about people who were then enslaved and sold but also about people who were also then involved in the slave trade itself And I think every time I'm in Nigeria, Ghana, Senegal, there's that conversation of we want to talk more about it, But then we want to make sure that it's clear that we weren't engaged in the slave trade. Um, And so I have amazing stories about talking to Ashanti chiefs about um, power, and where does power come from, and um, the argument saying that no power came from their involvement in the slave trade. So it makes it hard to have these conversations. But what I think I've learned more than anything else is that the best work we do is community-driven work, Mm -hmm. and that If we begin to frame our conversations as being driven, shaped, and informed by communities, these communities then will begin to share their information, work with us. We were very fortunate in the States of creating projects where we actually went around the country and asked people to bring out their collections, bring out your artifacts, bring out your history, and then use those to begin to stimulate conversations about slavery. Or segregation, and once people recognized that we were very serious and respectful of their work, of their family history, mm-hmm. um, the amount of material, the amount of stories that came out was overwhelming. Mm-hmm. I think we've we've probably captured more than ten thousand oral histories of families sharing a lot of work about a lot of stories about enslavement about the struggle against segregation once we went into their communities. Mm. And I think that's really one of the, I actually created a whole unit, that's their job is just to do that. Mm. And it's really been transformative in the way that we've been able to interpret slavery and segregation in the museum.
0: Mm -hmm. But you know, as you can understand, that's a very different situation in the UK because we don't have uh, descendant communities in the same way that you have them in the US. And, of course, there's a, another set of problems in other parts of the Caribbean where, where, again, the questions about shame and reluctance to think about or want to think about slavery. Get away from that history. Think about Africa. Think about the future. Don't think about that past, which has had such dark, uh, you know, which is so full of violence, which is so full of grief, which is so full of pain.
1: In some ways, I think that what we're really asking is to reframe the importance of history, right? To reframe it as not something that is owned only by scholars, not something that is really romanticized, but to help the public come with, a find a useful and usable history that's much more complex. Mm-hmm. And I tend to believe that, once we engage with the public, they're more interested in being part of that conversation. I have great confidence in the American people that I've wrestled with um, that this is a story that they'll tell more and more as time goes by. Mm-hmm.
0: So you're um, central to your way of thinking about reconfiguring the history, rewriting the history, is working from the grassroots upwards.
1: I became a much better historian when I began to work with, live with, and learn from the living community. Mm -hmm. Um, That yes, you do the traditional work, you look at the sources you always use, But I've been so shaped by the willingness of people to share their oral histories and how that has completely changed the way I've done so much of my work, that I really learned from them that the goal is not to tell a story of yesterday, but to help people understand the complexity, the ambiguity, and the continuing resonance of slavery, which was really not something I was trained to do in graduate school. And that's really changed dramatically the way I do the work I do.
0: And do you think that would be how people are being trained in graduate school now in the US? I don't think it's how they're being trained here.
1: I don't think it's how they're being trained in the United States, either. I think that there, where the changing in training in the United States has been has been the fact that there have been limits to the amount of people that get hired in universities. Mm-hmm. So suddenly, working outside the university is a legitimate alternative. And as a result of that, you see what they're calling either public history classes and the like that have changed somewhat, but it's still considered um, preferable to be in the university. And so these public history classes are really getting attention now, but they really haven't, you know, if somebody comes out and says that I want to work just in the heritage sector, um, you're still considered second class in the United States. Mm -hmm. And I think that's changing but you're still considered that. Mm. When I left graduate school and left you know, teaching university, my faculty advisor called me and, and chastised me and said, you're throwing away a good career to work in museums. So mm. now he asked me for a job. Now he's no, no, no.
0: <laughs> <laughs> So I wanted to ask you one other thing, Lonnie, to think, to talk, talk about one other area, and then we'll ask everybody else what they want to, to uh, ask. Um, and that is, I mean, you know when i came to the museum your museum um or well, i mean just to go backwards when i worked on the london sugar and slavery gallery for 2007 which is in the museum of london in docklands and we argued and argued that this has to be a story for all of us this is not just about black history, it's about black and white history, it's about the interconnections of those histories. And therefore, it's relevant to the whole British population. It's not just relevant to people of color. And um, I mean, that, that argument goes on and on. And I mean, in some ways, I think that the very difficult political situation that we're in now, and that you are in in the States, and that people are in in Brazil, and you know, all over, with the growth of populism and the growth of racism and the growth of right-wing politics of a very, very, very dangerous kind, um, the the struggle to believe in that connected history, believe that people really can work together, uh, is in some ways more difficult. And what was so fantastic about coming to your museum was to see how it was the American story that you told, and that that is going to require the other history museums uh, along the Mall, you know, the American one, and the uh, American Indian one, and the, you know, et cetera. They've got to transform themselves too, because everybody has got to be into this bigger story which is an inclusive story. So I just wondered if you'd reflect on that in the context of you know, the race politics of now, which is so troubling.
1: Well, I think first of all, you know, I have a political agenda. Right. My agenda is to make a country better, to use history as my tool, my weapon for social justice. So that was the basic assumption. And then how do we sort of um, make that work, operationalize it? I think I was also struck by the National Museum of the American Indian, which has got one of the most amazing collections, one of the greatest buildings, and I think one of the um, greatest missed opportunities I've ever seen. Um, Here was a museum that said, the story of Native people is a story by and for and about Native people. And if you then aren't of that community, hopefully you'll get something out of it. Mm-hmm. But that's not the goal of the museum. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was limiting and wrong for a national museum. And so my notion was that a national museum has to allow, whether it's the Native American Museum or Latino communities, Asian American that they've got to be able to revel in their, in our case, in their Blackness, but also then capture your Mm Americanness. And so thinking about that was, what are the best ways to do that? Well, One of the ways we looked at was, Americans love to talk about the founding fathers and love to talk about Thomas Jefferson and freedom. Yeah, they mentioned Sally Hemings, but it's really Thomas Jefferson and freedom. So what we said was, you can't understand American notions of the founding fathers' notions of freedom but understanding how slavery shaped those notions. And so suddenly, Thomas Jefferson, it's not about Sally Hemings. Mm -hmm. It's about how does this institution of slavery um, is reflected in his work, how does it shape his work? And in essence, if you believe as an American that Jefferson's thinking is so important to who you are today, then understanding the slave ties to it, it changes things. Mm -hmm. And so we really wanted to think very creatively what are all the ways we help people see how slavery is an American story, whether it's Mm -hmm. doing what you've done, which looks at the economic impact of many Mm -hmm. people Mm -hmm. uh, who benefit from slavery, Um, whether it's looking at sort of interracial issues, looking at mixed-race children. Mm -hmm. So we've tried to look at all these different things to say this is the story that is not just touches you, but is a story that profoundly shapes you and is the story of who you are. Mm -hmm. And it's been controversial, we get a lot of criticism for doing that, Um, but I really think that's the great strength of the museum. Yes, the collections are wonderful, but to really frame it as a story of us all Mm -hmm. is really what I think is the greatest contribution we made.
0: Mm -hmm. I agree with you. Well, would people like to ask questions? Make comments? Have thoughts? Yeah.
2: Thank you both so much, um, it's really, really fascinating to, to think about the differences and similarities between these two different um, histories and spaces, and one of the things that struck me in listening to both of you speak was about the, the sort of dynamic, the binary between victim and perpetrator, and how you've both thought about ways perhaps of complicating that. I was struck particularly, Lonnie, in your saying that um, the embarrassment And the difficulty about talking about slavery in many African countries has to do with um, a kind of repressed uh, history of culpability of many um, African elites. And uh, the way that the slave trade functioned in Africa, as we know, couldn't have happened without the cooperation Mm -hmm. of various parties um, local to it. So we need to complicate our story in many instances. And whilst we know that the enslaved in the US uh, are not uh, responsible for their own enslavement, like Kanye West thought they were, um, uh, we still nevertheless need to complicate the sense that perpetrators and victims is a is a simplistic binary in the bigger global sense. Mm. Um, and to think about perpetrator testimony. So I was quite interested in, in the question of shame, because you both talked about um, how People who have histories of slavery within their family um, still experience a lot of shame in um, acknowledging their histories and and thinking about it and not wanting perhaps to be conceived as purely victims, but to understand their current agency, not only in relation to that narrative, but in relation to other possibilities of of humanness. Um, So so I want to ask you about perpetrator shame Mm. or not, and what initiatives might... Um, exist to open up the conversation to those people who perhaps are descendants of families who owned slaves, to the institutions in both of our countries that profited to, you know, whether it's the Tate Museum Mm. because of sugar plantations or to, you know, what what moves are there both to complicate the binary on the Mm. one hand Mm. and to speak from the position of perpetrator experience historically and perpetrator memory Mm. um, on the other?
0: So, lot of points there.
1: So, my last name is Bunch, right? It is not an usual name in the United States. So, about a year ago, the security guard calls me and says that there's members of the Bunch family that want to talk to you. So, I don't know who these people are. Um, and I go downstairs, and they yell out, "Hi, we're the White Bunches." Um, and I was sort of stunned. um, And I said, well, what do you want? And what they (laughs) wanted was the sense of saying that we were family. And I said, do you mean your folks own my folks? Or what's the relationship? And they basically said that they wanted to come to the museum to be able to understand, what does it mean that their ancestors might have owned my ancestors? And it turned out they did. And so there was this amazing week we spent together where they were sort of racked with guilt. Um, I mean, that's really what they want to talk about, racked with guilt. And then there was this moment where I remember the person, the oldest one of the the white bunches was 87. Um, And he said to me that, For the first time in my life, once I realized that we had ties to slavery, for the first time in my life, I feel that I can confront that. And because you didn't reject us, we feel we have an opportunity to be healed. Now, that's one story, one family, right? Now, I got to be honest. When they first asked me to go down to the North Carolina where their roots were to have dinner with them, I was like, no, I don't think so. (laughs) but I think the notion of families, because for the, for the last 15 years, African-Americans are learning more about their own slave roots, that what you see are more of these moments coming together. Uh-huh. Some are formalized. Um, there's a major plantation called the Somerset Plantation in North Carolina, who basically brought black and white descendants together for what they call a fan reunion every year. Um, some of that, to me, Erases the rough edges of history, but at least it provides the opportunity for that engagement. I must admit, it is pretty strange to me that I don't do much Facebook, but boy, all these white bunches keep sending me notes, (laughs) Um, and so it's pretty. Well, not I was going to say scary. It's um, it's instructive to me to be able to sort of help these folks grapple with their own sense of of being involved with the slave trade. But they, where they're still struggling is the notion that their family's money was really based on owning these large cotton plantations in places like North Carolina. Mm-hmm. But at least we're beginning the conversation.
0: But that's such a positive story. Incredible, really. Now, I mean, for somebody to be able to talk openly about their guilt and about healing, I mean, that's... That's like in kind of all the textbooks on history as reparation. That's exactly what's supposed to happen. But it doesn't always. It's not always so straightforward, to put it mildly. And of course, there's a kickback as well. I mean, one of the things we've discovered is that the slave owners, the descendants of slave owners in Britain um, are, on the whole, very quiet about our project. They haven't wanted to um, come out very publicly. Uh, in the Caribbean, the white families that are left there, who are you know, white or passing as white, um, can be much less sympathetic. And they'll—I mean they're worried. They're worried that there's going to be a case for reparations that will have financial implications. So there are all kinds of complexities about it. But I think one of the really important aspects of of our having the database, which is so publicly accessible and which now a million people have used, is that people discover that their lineage is much more complicated than they thought it was. So lots of black people discover that they have white ancestors that they didn't know about, and of course, vice versa. There's an extraordinary passage in Graham Greene's autobiography, where the Greens are old slave owners in St Kitts, and Graham Greene uh, went to St Kitts. I mean, after many, many years, and you know, was just completely astonished to meet Brown Greens. You know, what was this? These were his relatives, and he wrote that a long time ago. But that experience of discovering and of what that discovery can do. My own husband had a, the reverse experience, actually. He was Jamaican. And through our, through our work, through our research, he discovered that he was related through his mother to a most unpleasant slave owner in the uh, 1820s who was actually, he actually wrote a pro-slavery pamphlet and he was the Tory MP for Cheltenham. This was pretty shocking discovery of your lineage, you know? which you thought was not like that at all. So these complexities, but exactly what that does is break down the binaries and break down that sense that there's those people there and those people there. Actually, there's just this incredible shifting, shifting sands, Mm -hmm. slippage, the slippage of race, which is so important. And, of course, one of the things that's also changing that a lot is the current preoccupation with um, genetic, whatever you call it. And uh, the discoveries, so many people's discoveries of their DNA being so much more mixed than they ever thought it was. So that's also something that's disturbing. It's disturbing the binaries. It's disturbing the focus on skin and skin color. But, of course, at the very same time, we've got lots of counter tendencies which are going on. I mean, skin bleaching doesn't stop. <laughs> it carries on and on. Let me just say a word about the, the victim perpetrator issue, because this is something we've thought about a lot, because, of course, we're, the pro- our project is about perpetrators. One of the great discoveries, extraordinary discoveries, was how many of those perpetrators are people living in Britain who've never been anywhere near the Caribbean, where it's simply a matter of money through inheritance, through annuities. Uh, You know, it's the rental that they're getting. They have nothing to do with over there. And that's one of the ways, of course, in which the ownership of people is laundered. It is like, I think it's like, this process of money laundering. So what's You know, I've been watching Ozark on Netflix, (laughs) which has, I mean, I couldn't believe it. How they actually launder money is they put it in washing machines and they wash it. I couldn't believe it. I mean, that's part of the whole process. Well, the fact that cash was paid for people is one of the ways in which the meanings of the buying and selling of human property is laundered it takes away it makes it an abstract matter which of course isn't an abstract matter at all so when people were paid compensation and the compensation was for enslaved people but what they received was money so it's not like you know the money doesn't have the stain that the reality is and i think that's i think that's one of the really important ways in which in britain People have been able to distance themselves. But what we've tried to do is move to talking a focus on what some people I think in the the States now call bystanders or implicated subjects. All the people who aren't benefiting directly, but all of us who've benefited in so many indirect ways from the shifts in British society because of, not just because of slavery, but because of empire, and how you know our privileged position in the world, which of course we're losing day by day, but nevertheless, we've had it and we have all those, we've, you know, we've had all those benefits for decades and centuries, how that means that we have a responsibility, all of us have a responsibility, which can't just be confined to the people who sold or traded or owned or worked on the plantations. It's something that's to do with what it means to be British altogether. That was a long set of answers. We've got a little bit more time. Who'd like to come in? Yes.
3: Um,
4: of course, in Britain, um, slavery is an enormous part of our past, but also colonialism and dealing with the legacies and the residences of that, and um, it's interesting when we kind of talk about pastness and past making, because slavery is something which is very easily encapsulated in something brutal from the past, and we've moved on, you know, we haven't, but the idea is, yeah, that, that sort of narrative. Um, but there's a lot written about, you know, colonialism and the end of empire and the resonances of that, and, you know, Bill Schwartz and the re re-ra- racialization of Britain, this kind of moment of, of panic as, as um, em- the end of empire comes and suddenly there's a sort of um, uh, Enoch Powell and, and and all of that. and um, Working with ethnographic collections like I do, there's sort of an interesting engagement with that, which is that colon- colonialism is sort of elsewhere, um, not only something that happened in the past, but also something that's dealt with through um, projects somewhere else, through kind of source community collaborations, going and consulting about colonial objects that we have in our museums here and very little engagement with the legacies and residences of, of colonialism in, in Britain through that idea of sort of re-racialization and structural racism um, and embedded inequalities. And I was wondering if either of you have any thoughts about how to engage with those sorts of questions with colonial collections in ethnographic memes in a more kind of direct way and, and thinking about those other legacies, not just in other places, but here in Britain.
0: Yeah.
1: I'll defer to you on that one.
0: Um, well, it's obviously a huge problem um, and a huge issue. I mean, um, I mean, just just to say that before I answer properly, that one of the things that we've been doing in relation to the project, um, trying to find different ways of intervening in national narratives. So we've worked with the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, which is, of course, the you know the resource for talking about all the important people um, in this uh, society, and which has uh, erased or obfuscated, or simply refused to know about, disavowed. Um, the connections with slavery that so many people have. So it's trying to, um, we've both put in many new entries into the ODNB, but also editing the ones that are there. And they use things like a West Indian merchant. And then you, know, you realize that actually this was a, um, a major sugar business in London, or whatever it might be. So we've done that. We're working with the National Portrait Gallery. We're working with the National Gallery about the um, uh, materials that they have that came um, through slave owners and because one of the things that some of the slave owners did was um, put their money into art collections so these are ways these are ways of trying to bring um, those questions uh, to the surface and now um, we've got somebody, Who's been working at the VA for a bit with the collection there and tracking um, the slave ownership provenance of materials there. So, but that's different, of course, from the kinds of collections that you're talking about that have been taken from elsewhere, stolen from elsewhere, et cetera. I'm I'm mean, gonna imagine. I mean, you I'm sure you know more about how to this problem of decolonizing our museums you know, that's a job for the museums. I mean, when we talk about, you talked about the difference between the universities and um, and the museums. I mean, in a way, you know, both sectors, we've got our work cut out. We've got to decolonize the, the curriculum and change the uh, change the people, um, and you've got to think about the collections. I mean, just just... The, I'm working on a major perpetrator, that's what my own research is about, who's a man called Edward Long, who was the historian of Jamaica. And I discovered, I mean, it has to be said, I discovered to my joy, though these are strange things to be joyous about, that one of his, um, that one of his relatives was uh, very influential in getting the Elgin marbles into the British Museum. And I thought, yes, you know. (laughs) There are all all these connections which just have to be tracked and understood and researched. And there's just so much to do. And whether they should be given back or, I mean, they should be properly labeled, they should be understood. You know, there's all those arguments about statues and the statue wars. I mean, there's just so much to do. I noticed that one of the, um, that, Quite a lot of the Confederate statues have actually been knocked down, taken out, removed.
1: About about ten percent. Oh, is that all? Yeah, about ten percent. Um, I think there's, you know, for us, the Confederate statues are the are the best example of that. And that is, so we've had long discussions: is it better to knock them down? Is it better to destroy them? Is it better to do what they do in Memento Park in Budapest, put the statues together and interpret them in different yeah. ways? Um, when I helped the mayor of New Orleans try to figure out what he wanted to do with the statues, his initial notion was take them down and destroy them. And my notion was, if you're gonna take them down, put them in a museum-like setting and interpret mm. them, and that's mm. what he's trying to do. So I think that you know the notion that you you don't erase history, Definitely um, not. but what the key is mm. is to give people opportunities to understand and wrestle with the complexity of it. Mm -hmm. From an American point of view, the challenge is less that and more about countering the notion that there's just a paucity of material, that the prevailing argument in the states is there isn't material on X, whatever X is, on slavery, on segregation. And so the challenge really was for us is to think in innovative ways where that material is and to find it. We believed it was in basements, trunks, and attics of people's homes. And we were able to find probably over 35,000 artifacts coming out of people's basements, Mm -hmm. trunks, and attics. So it's changed the way um, American museums think about collecting. Uh, Again, being community-driven. So that's been the challenge for us, is to Mm -hmm. really find the material and not to accept the notion that there's just nothing there. Mm -hmm. Because that gives museums a way out. Mm. There aren't collections, you can't we can't tell the story, sorry. Mm. So our notion is there are creative ways to tell stories without collections, but even more importantly, there are collections if you make the effort to find
0: them. Mm. I mean, your your question just brought to mind for me how you know, how how the issue for us in Britain, I mean slavery is one part of it, race is one part of it, empire is central to the whole story. Uh, and, you know, it's so huge, actually. And it made me think about the extent to which um, you think that you have to deal with the American empire as a, as a problem in your museum.
1: You know, we never use that phrase at all. Never. Um, and what I was... But what we wanted to think about was, what does being American really mean? if you look at it through the lens of race. Mm -hmm. And that's really how we began to sort of shift both the (laughs) kinds of people I hired, the stories we told, and ultimately the vision for what the museum is. Mm -hmm. And that's been the kind of, it's been both challenging to do it, but it's also been the only reason I would argue that you build the National Museum of African American History and Culture to reframe the narrative.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, oh, lots of people. Can we go on for another? Okay, okay. Okay. Yeah, and there is some food at the back.
2: Yeah,
0: Yeah. okay. Um, Who wanted to speak? Yes, yes.
3: Thank you. This has been really fascinating. And the one I mentioned earlier that we're looking at memorialization of empire and commonwealth history. And on Saturday... Evening, we had the online AGM of the Commonwealth Association of Museums. That was addressed by somebody who had been an intern at St. Kitts Museum, and she had catalogued, when there, the 300 objects of the St. Kitts Museum. Now, I mean, John Cleese is moving to Nevis as part of St. Kitts and Nevis, so I made some suggestions with sort of the end end point of Brexit history, there are cartoons of silly walks being done off the cliffs of Dover. But I was just wondering, obviously, so many artefacts in Britain that relate to the Caribbean, so questions of restitution loans and and so on, like the Benin bronzes are under discussion at the moment. But I was wondering, going back to Catherine's point about what people don't want to have discussed, especially whites in, in the Caribbean... If you had any thoughts for Caribbean museums, many of them, many very small, in the light of your trajectory, how they might start to build a different kind of collection and, and dialogue. I, I, I think can, that
1: can
0: we just collect up a few... Oh, sure. Sorry. A few more comments. I think there's somebody over here. Yeah, just next to you.
4: No, it's more about you. When you said earlier about um, museums being your weapon for social justice, just be interested to hear you talk more about that. Um, you mentioned obviously about going into other museums and how you felt like their museums didn't really um, just kind of had a s- small space for kind of um, the black community, but more widely, what you know, what do you, what do you want to achieve in terms of social justice out of the museums?
0: Anybody else? Yeah. Um, I was interested, again, a bit more generally, I mean, you're both historians, and Lonnie, I think you refer to people who went on to do heritage as somehow seen as second-class historians. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was just wondering if you could say a few words about your perspective on this field of critical heritage studies and how your work fits into that, and also how you think we should be addressing the issue of race in, in that field of work and somebody at the back.
4: Hi.
3: Uh, my question was uh, just going off Lonnie um, Lonnie's comments about how the American empire, that phrase is never used in the museum. I actually wanted to turn that question over to Catherine as well. What in a, I, I teach history in Bangladesh and I teach British imperial history and there you teach British imperial history because you're explaining the American empire to them. So it's a very different context. So I wondered for Catherine... In your work, what, where does contemporary empire and Britain's role in that feature in your work? Does it, or is it, is contemporary empire a part of uh, what, it, what, what you're speaking to through your work?
0: Okay, off you go. Oh. Oh, anybody else?
2: Quick thing to follow on. I know I've had a question, but it's related, Lonnie, to your saying it's about the American Empire thing. So, so what I heard you saying is that you're trying to redefine Americanness in relation to race and to have a bigger story about Americanness. But do you ever worry that in the current um, kind of uh, patriotic discourse that is now colouring American politics, the anti-global turn, that what you are in danger, perhaps, of doing is perhaps you know, inventing a new kind of Americanness, which now can accommodate race, but is nevertheless about making America great again. So how do, you, how do you avoid that?
1: Well, let me answer that first. I mean, I think that the notion of making America great is something that I think a lot about, because I think that America's greatness is only when it admits its weakness and embraces how central race and racism has been to America. I don't think that ever will then allow Americans to think, ah, we've made it. We're better people. But what I think I want to see happen is that right now, I would say 50% of Americans think race is a problem, not race is something that has helped to shape the country in ways both negative and positive. So I'm trying to sort of move it in that direction. Um, God, if I ever am told I'm making America great, I quit. I'm done. (laughs) We're through. I'll never wear one of those hats. Um, I think that I would never be arrogant enough to think about what I would tell many Caribbean museums to do, but I do think the best museum in the Caribbean is the Barbados National Museum, and I think that they do a brilliant job of threading the needle between sort of Asian identity, race, um, and as being part of a broader empire. And so I think that they're a great example of what I think other smaller museums in the Caribbean would do. And I think that looking at the work of Alexandra Cummings and the writing that she's done would be really helpful, I think, for them. Um, While I'm not trying to make America better, I really am trying to force America to confront its racial racial demons. And by creating... um, a museum of social justice, I'm trying to do a couple things. One is I'm trying to convey to anybody that goes through, and especially younger kids, that you have a responsibility to make America live up to its stated ideals, that it is a conscious decision and an ongoing struggle to demand America confront and face the things that it doesn't want to grapple with. And I think that you can't go through my institution without seeing both the sacrifice and the loss, but also seeing the kind of resiliency to demand freedom and fairness. Not that we get there, but, but mm-hmm. incrementally begin to change it. So I'm hoping to create conversations around those issues. And part of the way we do it is through really using history contextualized contemporary issues. So we are about to announce that we've collected everything to do with Trayvon Martin and that murder, and we do a lot of programs around that to begin to help people understand that racial violence is a long history in this country, uh, in the United States. What does that mean? And so I think for us, it's really saying, what are the contemporary issues that we should be grappling with that we can contextualize, but that we can shine a light of having a national museum pay attention to those issues? So it really is, I meet with my staff quarterly to look at what are the contemporary things we should be wrestling with. I think it's that important to us.
0: Well, just just one comment. Um, I mean, you know, I think the reason why um, we've done all the work we have done uh, and we'll go on doing it um, is indeed uh, to try and Um, to bring, to make a better conversation, to bring questions of race and inequality to the surface, to engage in that, to provide uh, evidence, which I think is very important. I mean, I think in in the British context, the fact that we've produced all this empirical evidence to demonstrate British involvement in slavery, it means it can't simply be ignored. It can't simply be pushed away because you know it's so concrete. It's so uh, it's so empirical, <laughs> um, and the mass of it. You know the mass of it. Um, but always uh, wanting to contextualise it, to contextualise that historical work um, in the present. So thinking about. Um, the relation between the decline I mean the the almost non-existence of the British Empire now and but of course it's still so powerful in the imagination Not, not as an empire any longer but as an idea of what kind of country this should be and I think I do think that the struggle over Brexit has really brought that to the surface in ways that are terribly troubling and anything we can do historically to point to the ways in which this country has always been a place of mix and mixture and people coming and people going. And, you know, there's nothing pure about it at all. I mean, that's all part of the interconnected global story that we have to tell. And I'm not sure if that's really responding to what you are asking about, about empire. But that's the, you know, these are the legacies of empire, the legacies of empire. I heard this extraordinary quote, which was that, I mean, it was in the context of the arguments over the Rhodes statue. And apparently Cecil Rhodes said to Lord Grey on some occasion, you're an Englishman. And you have won first prize in the lottery of life. And I thought, what an absolutely incredible quote. I mean, that idea that because you're English, you're at the top of the, you know, your best boy. You're top of the league. And, you know, that is, but it's so powerful. It's so embedded in English national identity. And here, I mean, English would be the relevant word here. But it is so embedded. And it's, you know, the the work to undo that idea of white superiority, white privilege, white rights is just a very, very, very long and slow business. And it seems to me that's the work, you know, that's very, very important work for historians. So, thank Thank you you so much, Lonnie.
1: Thank you.